You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John introduces many of the themes that he's going to develop throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. And last Sunday, we began to look at two of those major themes, belief and unbelief. And we saw uh, unbelief and its reasons in verses 10 and 11. And we saw, we're going to look today at belief and its results in verses 12 and 13. And last week I mentioned that when the Jews rejected Jesus, when He came to His own people and His own people did not receive Him, that they did so and they rejected Him and crucified Him with knowledge. They knew what they were doing. And by that I meant that they understood who Jesus was claiming to be. They understood the miracles that He did and that they pointed to the reality of who He was. They understood what He was offering to them. They knew full well who it was that He was claiming to be and what it was He was claiming to do. It's not like they crucified some Jew mistakenly and then realized afterwards, oh, we just thought He was a common criminal. No, they knew who He claimed to be and they crucified Him willingly. Now, after I mentioned that, more than one person mentioned to me that those words and those statements could be taken as anti-Semitic. In fact, this last week I was called a Jew-hating white supremacist. Now, Thomas didn't mean anything mean by that. (laughs) He was joking because he knew that I'm not a white supremacist, that I'm not anti-Semitic at all. But he did point out that, taken from their context, those words could be misunderstood. And he's true. That was right, and that is true. If you were to disregard everything you know about me and ignore everything I said right before that and everything I've ever said before that, everything I said right after that, and everything I will say from this point forward for the rest of my life, then those comments could be misunderstood. So allow me to clarify something about that so that I'm not misunderstood as anti-Semitic. And I clarify simply because I have no better way to introduce this sermon than to clarify something I, I screwed up last week. Some of you are starting to think I do this on purpose. And you say after Sunday, I think he messed that up because he needs an introduction for next week so that he can clarify it. I said two things in the context of all of that explanation of that text, which would indicate that I'm not anti-Semitic. I want to make sure that you caught those two things. The first thing that I said is that I believe that the land of Israel is still God's land and that He still has purposes and designs, not only for the nation of Israel, but for that, that land. I am a premillennialist, which means I believe that Jesus Christ will reign from the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years, just like it says in Revelation chapter 20. I take that literally. I'm not a post-millennialist. I'm not an all-millennialist. And since I am a premillennialist, by definition, I cannot be anti-Semitic. doesn't make sense. I am a Gentile grafted in to the native olive tree. So I can't be anti-Semitic if I believe that those are still God's people and that He still has a design and a plan for them as a nation. And that the church has not replaced Israel, nor has the church supplanted or taken over all of the promises that were given to Abraham and the nation of Israel. Second, I pointed out that the world's rejection of the Messiah is as culpable and is the same sin as Israel's rejection of the Messiah. 
Though He came to the world, and though the world was made by Him, the world did not know Him. The world rejected Him. And though Israel had more light than the world did, that doesn't mean that the world is not culpable for their rejection. The world is responsible and culpable and blamable for their rejection of Jesus because they rejected Jesus who was their God by creation. The Jews rejected Jesus who was their God by covenant. So though the Jews had more light, and though they rejected Jesus with all of that light, they are more culpable in that they had more light and so they're more blameworthy. But it's a sad, a sad commentary on the condition of fallen humanity and our world in general when you acknowledge somebody's blame for something and that's taken as an attack against their race or their nation or their skin color or their person or what have you. Those are not anti-Semitic comments. It's simply to acknowledge that both the world and Israel are blamed for rejecting their Messiah. The rejection of Israel's rejection of their Messiah only serves to prove that more light does not improve one's condition. Did you catch that? Sometimes having more light only serves to reveal just how much we love darkness. That's all having more light does. Most of the time. You give somebody as much light as they can handle, and sometimes all it does is just show how much they really love the darkness. That's what the Jewish nation's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah did. And it shows just how blind we really are in our sin. So, that answers the, deals with the subject of what about those who rejected Him, but what about some who believed on Him? Because though He came to the world, and the world did not know Him, and He came to His own people, His temple, His priests, His people, His city, His land, He came to all of that which was His, to His own things, and they did not receive Him. What about those who did receive Him? Because not all remained in unbelief. There were some that believed. What about them? What, what is it that makes those who believe to differ from those who do not believe? I am a believer, but my neighbor is not. None of my neighbors are. What is it that makes me to differ from them? Why is it that some believe while others remain in hardened unbelief and darkened unbelief? We're going to answer those questions later on in the book of John. We're going to see a little bit of it this morning, but it's developed throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, there are some times when Jesus deals with that subject in a fashion that's going to make many of us very uncomfortable. Because it's not easy stuff to listen to. Is it because I am less hardened of heart than my neighbor? Is it because I love darkness less? Is it because I'm less lost? Less depraved? Less of a sinner? More spiritual? And is it because I'm smarter or brighter than the next guy? What is it that causes me to differ from my neighbor? We get a glimpse of it in verses 12 and 13 of John chapter 1. And we're going to look at those this morning. We're going to see three things about those who have received the Word. So although the world rejected Him and His own people did not know Him, there were some who received Him. We're going to notice three things about those who have received the Word. First, that they have been granted they have been granted a new status. Second, we're going to see that they have savingly believed. And third, we're going to see that they have been born of God. They've been granted a new status. They have savingly believed. And they have been born of God. Those are three things that are true of those who have received the Word. And we could go much deeper than we're going to this morning in verses 12 and 13. There are, and I'm aware of this because somebody inevitably is going to come up after the message today and say, hey, you could have drawn out all kinds of stuff out of those two verses. To which my answer is, in advance, I know I could have. And we could spend weeks on this. And I mean weeks because there's all kinds of great truths that are buried right below the surface. 
But we're going to wait because John just introduces some of these things today. Those same truths are lying on top of the surface all the way through the Gospel of John. So we'll get to them. Just have patience. We'll get to them. But today, we're just going to notice these three things about those who have received the Word. They have been granted a new status. They have savingly believed. And they have been born of God. So let's look at the first one, the beginning of verse 12. They have been granted a new status. John says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. To as many as received Him. I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice, first of all, that some do receive Christ. Not everybody, thankfully, remains in unbelief and disobedience. Not everybody rejects Him. Ultimately, some will receive Him. And we acknowledge, John acknowledged that back then. We acknowledge that today. There are some who do trust Christ and receive Christ. Though, listen, the majority of people do not. If you're a believer, you're in the minority. You have entered in through the narrow gate. You have entered upon a narrow way. Many go down the broad road of destruction and few find the way that leads to eternal life. Those who really are genuinely saved are not the majority of humanity. They are the minority of humanity. They are an innumerable multitude, yes, but they are few in comparison to the billions upon billions upon billions who are lost in their unbelief and perish in their sins. And then notice John says, but as many. And those words are all inclusive. That is, all who have received Him. Everything you're about to see is true of all of those who have received Him. To everyone who has received Him. As many as received Him. Everybody who has received Him. No, no one is exempt. Nobody could say, I have received Christ, but these things are not true of Me. And nobody can say that these things are not true of Me, but I have yet to trust Christ. As many as has received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. In that last phrase, there are three key words. First, the word gave. Second, the word right. And third, the word children. And those three words give us an indication as to what John means. To as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Who is it that gives that right? It is God who gives that right. You, you could say it's the Word that gives that right. And by Word, we don't talk about the written Word, but the living Word incarnate who was with God and who was God. He is the one God in human flesh, Jesus Christ or the Father, however it is that you want to flesh that out through the members of the Trinity, it is God who gives the right to become children of God. To as many as receive Him, He gave that right. That means that I do not have that right in and of myself. I do not have it by default. I am not born with that right. I don't have that right just because I'm a human being. That right is given to me by God. It is a gracious gift. It is a sovereign gift. It is God's gift to as many as have received Him. The reason they have received them is because He gave them the right to become children of God. Now, I'm not born with that right, so I don't have it in and of myself. I don't acquire that right through effort or through work. I don't earn the right to become a child of God. And listen, no decision that I can make can earn me or give me the right to become the child of God. He gives it. He gives me the right to become a child of God. It is God's gift. It is not of our doing. That's why we say salvation is by grace. It is a gift. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God to us that He gives us the right to become children of God. To whom does He give the right? To as many as received Him. 
Now let me ask you a question. Did God give the right to become children of God to those who rejected Him? To those who did not know Him? Did He give that right to them? But to as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the child of God. Not to the unbelieving. John doesn't say that. John does not say He came into the world and the world, though they were given the right to become the children of God, did not know Him. No. He doesn't say of all of Israel that all of Israel was given the right to become children of God. No, they did not know Him. To those who have received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Not to unbelievers. Not to those who rejected Him. To them He gave the right to become children of God. Second important word is that word right. If you're looking at the King James translation, you'll notice that it says, gave He the power to become children of God. The word doesn't mean power. The word means right. It speaks of a status or a privilege. It has nothing to do with effort or exerting effort or the ability to do something. The word is used 102 times in the New Testament and never does it refer to a physical or to a moral or spiritual ability to do something. And you say, is that important? It is important. Because He gives us not the power to make something of ourselves. He gives us the status. He grants to us the status, the privilege, the calling, the authority to call ourselves sons of God. It's not a power that God gives and then by that power which is infused in me, I somehow make something of myself. That's not it. He doesn't give me the power to do something noteworthy or noble or to become a child. He gives me that status. The status itself as a child of God is granted to me as a free gift of grace. To as many as received Him, to them He gave the right, the status, to become children of God. The third important word, first gave and right, is children. The word, there were different words that John could have used. He could have used a word that spoke of an adopted son who was given all of the privileges and, and sort of the, the last name of the family and all of the rights that came with that. He could have used that word. He doesn't. He uses a word for child which emphasizes the shared nature between the father and the son or between a father and his son. And we kind of distinguish that today. You can have somebody who is your son in the sense that they are adopted or welcomed into your family who has all the legal rights because you've adopted them. Though they may come from a different family entirely. They come from they have a different skin color. They may have none of your personality traits or character quirks or preferences or likes or dislikes or any of that. Yet they're still your son. But when you and I say something like, boy, he's his daddy's boy, isn't he? What do we mean by that? He's a chip off the old block. He's just like his old man. He's just like his father. Boy, his, you can see the similarities between that boy and his daddy, can't you? That's the idea behind this word. To those who have received Him, He gave the privilege or status, the right, to become children, that is, to share in the divine nature. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, we are partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Well, when we partake of life eternal and light and of the Word and the Spirit of God becomes comes to dwell in us, we become partakers or sharers in, fellowshippers in the divine nature. We fellowship in the light and in the life which is, which is the essential nature of God Himself. And in that way, we become just like our Father. He gave us the right to become children of God. And we have to become children of God, by the way. We're not born children of God. You realize that? You come out of the womb and your default setting is rebellion and disobedience. That's your default setting. That is what you are by nature. 
And just because your child is born to you, Christian parents, doesn't overcome that one whit. They're wicked rebels. And I mean wicked. Wicked to the core. Wicked to the heart. Dead in trespasses and sins. You say, but I'm a Christian, and my wife's a Christian, or my husband's a Christian. Certainly our child is not like that. No. Your child is just as dead as the worst pagan in the remotest idol-worshipping jungles of the far-reached countries of the Amazon somewhere. Just as dead. You have to become a child of God because we are born dead in trespasses and sins. God has to do something to make us His children. So, we have been given or granted a change of status. To as many as received Him, to them, not to everybody, but to them, He gave as a sovereign gift the privilege, the right, to become a child of God. And so we become and we change our status. We have a changed nature too, by the way. Second, not only do we have a change of status, but we have savingly believed. Look at verse 12 again. But to as many as received Him, He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. Now, all of these phrases are synonymous. Those who have received Him, those who have been given the right, those who are the children of God, are those who have believed on His name. This all describes... All these phrases describe the same person. Those who have received Him are those who have believed. Those who have believed are the children of God. Unbelievers are not children of God in the sense that John is describing here. They're children of God in a different sense. In the sense that He's the Creator of all men. So He is their Father by creation, but not Father by relation. Not Father by, by special intimate knowledge and special intimate relationship. He has a relationship to unbelievers as their Creator, their Provider, their Sustainer, their Judge, but not as Abba Father. But to as many as received Him, those are the ones who have received the right to become the children of God. Those are the ones who are the children of God because they have savingly believed on His name. Now it's becoming quite fashionable in Christian circles, in so-called Christian circles, to believe that somebody can be a child of God having never received Christ, having never believed on His name. It's fashionable in emergent church circles, in any kind of universalistic circle, in liberal Protestant denominations it's fashionable, among open theists it's fashionable, to believe that somebody who is in a remote, it's the whole wider mercy view, a remote jungle is a child of God even though they may never have heard the name of Jesus because they're sincere in their idolatry. And because they're sincere in their idolatry, they're therefore children of God. Quite a fashionable belief. Heretical, but very fashionable in evangelical circles. What does John say? Only those who have received Him, only those who have received Him are His children. Unbelievers are not. Now that brings me no joy to say. I don't glory in that fact. It breaks my heart that that's true. But that's true. As much as I may not like that truth, unbelievers are not the children of God. And they have no right to that status. They have not been granted that status by God because they have not received Christ. They have not believingly saved, or uh, savingly believed on the name of Jesus Christ. To as many as believed on His name. What does it mean to believe on the name of Jesus? We, the, the term name or the idea of a name meant something different in antiquity than it does to us today. To us today, the idea of a name is, or a name is just something, it's merely more than a label that we use to distinguish one person from another. 
If I say Dave was a jerk, well, I could be talking about three or four different guys here. But when I say Dave Rich was a jerk, then I, we all understand exactly who we're talking about. Because we use names to distinguish one person from another. In antiquity, in Bible times, it was much different. A name in Bible times communicated not just one person distinguished from another person, but a name represented or communicated all that that person was and all that that person did. So the psalmist can say in Psalm chapter 5, and I don't have the reference, I was going to read it, but I left whatever notes I usually bring up here in the pulpit, in the pew with me. Uh, it can say in Psalm 5, Blessed are all those, something to this effect, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It should say something like this. Never trust a guy who can't remember what he was going to say. Uh, psalm 5, it's in there. Read the whole psalm, I think it is. And if you can't find it there, read the whole psalter because it's in there. Um, Blessed are all those who love the name of God. Love the name of God. What does that mean, to love the name of God? Does that mean we love a word? Does that mean we love the word Yahweh or the word Jehovah or the word Lord or the word G-O-D, God, and that we're somehow blessed or made secure by just uttering that name? No, that's not the idea. When you love the name of God, you are loving all that that... Oh, thank you, Shep. I don't need it now, but thank you. We, uh, you love all that, all that that name communicates. The person that that name represents. That's whom you love. Or when it says, and I guess I'll use this after all, Psalm 20 verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. How does the name of God set me securely on high? Does the name of God somehow secure me? I simply utter it and I'm made safe? No, we don't treat the name of God like a mantra, but what the psalmist means is that it is God Himself who is represented by that name, who sets us securely on high. So when John says you believe on His name, it doesn't mean simply that you believe some intellectual facts about Jesus, nor does it mean that you simply utter His name or believe that He existed or believe some things about Him. It means that you are placing your faith, your confidence, your hope, your trust, everything about you securely in the hands of the person whose name that represents. Jesus the Christ who is the Savior. The Word made flesh, God in human flesh, who is the author of life, who is the light, who was with God, who was God, who created all things. That is the one whom you believe in. Not just the name itself, in the sense that we use the name, but the person that that name is attached to. And all that He is, all that He has done, and the totality of how He presents Himself to us. You trust in Him. That is saving belief. That is saving belief. So we have been granted a new status. We have savingly believed on His name. And the third truth about those of us who have received the Word is that we have been born of God. We've been born of God. Look at verse 13. Who were born of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now remember the synonyms throughout the passage. Those who have received Christ are those who have been granted the right to become children of God. They are the children of God. They are those who have believed in His name. And they are also all of those who have been born of God. All of those who have received Him have been born of God. Now you understand that John is introducing something that we refer to as the new birth. It's called in the Bible regeneration, the new birth, Sometimes we refer to it as being born again. 
That's what John is introducing. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, then you know that he's going to develop that at length when you get to chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus when he says to Nicodemus, nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless he has been born again. And John is just introducing that subject here when he says that those who have received Christ have been born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they've been born of God. That's the new birth. And contrary to your misunderstanding about this and our culture's misunderstanding, the concept of the new birth, being born again, did not originate in the 1980s with Jerry Falwell and Moral Majority. Nor is it Pat Robertson's idea, nor is it something distinctly with the Christian religious right or a political movement. It's a biblical concept. It's a biblical idea. And it's something, by the way, and a doctrine that we neglect only to our greatest peril. We need to be born again. There is a necessity in the Bible that you and I be born again. That is actually the answer to our problem. Jesus said you must be born again because that which is flesh, born of the flesh, is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So there has to be a rebirth, a regeneration, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's what regeneration means. Born again. We're reborn. You have to be reborn. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you have never been born again, then you are not a Christian. I don't care how long you've been coming to church. I don't care how often you come to church. How intensely you listen to the messages. How often you read your Bible or how often you pray. If you have never been born again, you are not a Christian. You are not saved. You are not a child of God. You have to have been given new life. A new spirit. New affections. A new beginning. A new identity. You have to become a child of God and become a child not by physical birth, but by spiritual birth. That is why John, in introducing this, sort of fences us in against any errors that we might make concerning the new birth. We are born, but then he says, three knots. N-O-T-S. Three knots. Not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, and not by the will of man. So let's take each one of those. We are born not of blood. Now actually, the Greek word for blood is plural. And if you translated it literally, it would say not of bloods. Plural. What does John mean, not of bloods? Some people say, well, blood, of course, is made up of little individual drops, and you put all the drops of blood together, you get bloods. Well, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think the idea of bloods refers to the combination of bloods and ancestors. And what John here is, what John here is nullifying is the idea or belief that one is born a child of God because he has certain ancestors. And this was big in Jewish thinking. We've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the twelve sons of Israel. And I'm of this tribe. Remember how Paul says that in Philippians chapter 3? Born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Jewish as Jewish could be, a Pharisee. All of his ancestry he rolls out. He says it was all scubalon. It was all rubbish. All manure when I saw Christ. And it's that idea that John is attacking. You cannot point to your ancestry and say, look, I'm a fifth generation Christian. Really? It's not of bloods. There's nothing about your heritage, your ancestry, or your lineage, or your parents, or the combination of your parents, or any blood that's in your veins that has anything to do with being a child of God whatsoever. It's not by blood. Second, it's not by the will of the flesh. Now, some people say there, uh, see in those words a reference to sexual desire, the will or the desires of the flesh. I don't think John is using it in that way. He's not saying that you're not born of God through any desires that your parents had that resulted in your birth. That's not what he's describing. He is describing there, I, I think, and I agree with J.C. Ryle who said this, 
John is describing there the activities or the desires or the efforts or the exertions of the flesh. In other words, you cannot will yourself into the kingdom. You cannot exert effort and make yourself a child of God. You cannot by your own doing change your heart or change your nature or change your desires or change your status. You're not born a child of God and you cannot make yourself a child of God by exerting your sinful flesh. Your flesh does not will that. Your flesh does not want that. Your flesh militates against that. And there is no desire and no activity that the dead and depraved sinner can partake of or endeavor to do that might cause him to be a child of God or make him a child of God. It's not according to the will of the flesh. Your flesh can't do that. It can't accomplish that. Third, it's not by the will of man. It's not by anybody else's effort either. You're a child of God today, listen, not because you willed it, but because He willed it. He said, but Jim, I did will it. I remember being willing. But you were willing because He willed your will to will it. That's what it results to. It is not according to the will of man. You cannot appeal to the dead man's will and expect him to will himself into the kingdom. It doesn't work that way. So what, what causes the new birth? If it's not by your blood's ancestry, if it's not by the power of anything you do in the flesh, if it is not by my own will that I make myself a Christian, what is it that makes me a believer? You have to be born of God. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I am born into an earthly family through earthly, natural, fleshly means. I am born into a heavenly family through heavenly, supernatural, spiritual means. My being born of blood, by being born of the will of man, by being born of the exertion of the flesh, all of that is physical. I need a spiritual birth. I need someone or something to make me to be born again. To give me a new heart. Because I, as a sinful, fallen, dead, fleshly human being, cannot exert anything to change my status. It has to be granted to me. And I have to be born of God. And God is the one who is the active agent. I want you to notice that there are two parallel truths presented in the passage. Some of you got hung up on the last one that I just did. Didn't hear me present anything about the first one. Because you weren't listening for it. That or you assumed it. It didn't strike you as sort of grating against your flesh. The first truth that is presented here is that the sinner is responsible to believe and to receive Christ. And even though receiving Christ has become kind of a catchword for every Pelagian, Phineastic, evangelistic technique known to man, it's still true that the sinner must receive Christ. And the sinner must respond to the Gospel. And we must obey the Gospel, which is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Gospel message. And we must do that. And I believe that with every fiber of my being. And whenever I present the Gospel, either one-on-one or up here or in front of a group in Awana, I tell people, you must respond. You must repent. You must believe. You must be born again. And the second parallel truth is what? That is granted to us. That's not something I have by right, by myself. And it is not according to my flesh. And it's not a result of my will. Though it is expressed through my will, it is not a result of my will. Catch the difference? Let's wrap all of this up with two, what I think are very obvious conclusions. First, you and I cannot get anybody saved. We can't get anybody saved. 
I can't will anybody into the kingdom of God. If I could, my whole family would be believers. Everybody I pass on the street would be a believer. I, I cannot, by an act of my will, get, make anybody a Christian. I can't do it. And I cannot get anybody saved. Now, it's not within my ability to save anybody. It is in my ability to preach the gospel, and with that, I leave it. And God has to do the saving. That's not my job. We present the gospel, and we turn it over to the Lord, who Himself does the saving through the power of the gospel. But I cannot, through anything I do, cause somebody to be born again. And if you get this, this central truth down in your mind, you will understand why we do everything here the way that we do it. And it is true that if you mess up this essential truth, that you, through your efforts and your activities, cannot cause anybody to be born again, if you mess that up, then your whole philosophy of church, your whole idea of what you do on a Sunday morning, your whole approach to preaching and music and everything else is all going to be askew. Because I've run into guys that are my peers that also shepherd churches and pastor churches. And they have this notion that if they could just dress a certain way or act a certain way, that then the gospel will be effective. Then they could reach their generation. I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a tattoo because once I get all tatted up, then people will be more responsive to the gospel. And I'm going to grow that little soul patch right beneath my lip here because if people see that I have a soul patch, then they'll see how cool I am. And they like soul patches. And they'll see that I like soul patches and that I like Jesus, so maybe they'll like Jesus. Or if I preach with jeans that are ripped up and a faded t-shirt, or I somehow uh, get a body piercing, then I'll be relevant and people will see how relevant I am and then people will come to Christ as a result of the Gospel. Folly! That is foolishness. Listen, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but I'm going to, that is stupidity on a level that is frankly shameful. Do you think that the power of the Gospel, that God has rested the power of the Gospel on your tattoo, on your piercing, on how you dress, are you kidding me? Well, if we just create the right environment through music, through media, through lights, through the right appeal, through an altar call, this is my main objection to an altar call, then we can lure or trick or draw people in and they'll be born again. And people will come forward by the thousands and few of them will actually be saved. Few of them. If you get this wrong then all you will do is fill the church with false converts. Because you will minimize the Gospel demands. You will soft-pedal and soft-sell the Gospel in order to trick or lure or get somebody into the kingdom. When if you just understood, it's not your work. It's not your activity. You can't do anything. The power of the Gospel is the power of the Gospel. And people are born again of God... Not by your tattoos, your soul patch, your piercings, or your $30 haircut. None of that matters. It's not the music. It's not an altar call. It's not the mood lighting. It's not the incense. It's not making people comfortable. And it's not serving coffee in the lobby. Those things have nothing whatsoever to do with anybody getting saved or being born again. You are born again not through the will of the flesh, or the will of man, or of your ancestry, but of God. He is the one who determines that. And it doesn't matter how often somebody comes forward to an altar if they have not been granted the right to become a child of God and they have not been born of God, they're going to leave unborn again thinking they're a convert and not being a convert. Sometime I'll actually speak on the subject of altar calls, but we'll save that for another day. The second, I think, very obvious conclusion is this. For all of this, we give God glory. We have to give Him glory. 
if anybody has ever become saved as a result of anything I've said, can I take credit for that? Not a bit of it. Not one whit. I have not, I, I get, I get no percentage of the glory. None whatsoever. All I'm doing is being obedient, at best an unprofitable servant. And God does the work, so God gets the glory. Because there is nothing in my sinful flesh that made me a child of God through effort or through exertion. There is nothing in this dead man that resuscitated himself. I've been born of God and born again. And that is God's work. We have been granted a change of status. We have been, we have savingly believed, and we have been born of God. And so we can say, to Him be the glory both now and forever. All of it. Because it is all His work. So what is it that's true of you and I? We've been granted salvation. We've been granted the status of a child of God. We have savingly believed because of that. We have received Christ. And we have been born from above. A spiritual birth. And born again. And for that we praise God because He gets all the glory for it. Because you and I, though it is expressed in our will, it is not the product of our will. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for such a marvelous salvation. And that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that You did not leave us that way. But that You caused us to be born again to a living hope, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. You, through the exertion of Your will, caused us to be born again and brought us forth by the Word of truth, as James says. We thank You for that truth that there was a, a need on our behalf to be born, to be reborn, to be given a new nature, and that You have moved in grace to do that for us. We thank You for the status of being a child of God. We thank You that it is all of grace. We thank You that we cannot work for it. And we thank You that we cannot affect it in our flesh or in all of our efforts upon anybody else. But we thank You that You, by Your grace, stepped down and granted that to us, gave it to us, and caused us to be born again. What a great salvation. And we honor You, our God, and our Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.